One of the most common objections I often find when I'm talking to people about the Christian faith is this issue with rules. Uh, people say it's too restrictive. Uh, you've got all these rules and it kind of cramps my style. You know, we read the Ten Commandments there, you know, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not have sex before marriage, don't get drunk, don't do drugs. All these, they weren't really, they weren't really in there, you know, I'm, I'm contextualising them, you see. Um, You'll make it up extra rules. Extra rules. There's all these kind of rules. People look at Christianity and they go, it's rules, right? Uh, so often, I'll be chatting with people down in the SU and, I, and, and I'll say, you know, would you like to know about Christianity? And they'll say to me something like, oh, that's not really for me. I push them on that a little bit. I say, well, what, do you, what do you mean that's not for you? They go, well, you know, I'm not really into that way of living. Uh, I think what's behind it so often is that people, they don't want to, they think from the outside that Christianity is just this way, you know, that God will govern our life, that he'll constrict us. That if we sign up for Christianity, it'll be a little bit like putting a straitjacket on. Uh, you know, we can't move, we've got no freedom, we're constrained from doing what we really want to do. Because uh, that's what freedom is, isn't it, really? Just to do whatever we want, whenever we want? What is it? I wonder if that's really what the definition of freedom is. Uh, we'll be throwing that around a little bit tonight. Uh, tonight we're going to be thinking about this issue of freedom, the issue of where Christians have these rules and how it all kind of fits together. Um, maybe you're here tonight as a Christian and you're thinking uh, on the inside, you might not be game to say it on the outside, you're thinking that, yeah, this this kind of being a Christian, it does cramp my style. Uh, you kind of wish that, you know, you, you see what your mates do, they go out, they play up, and you go, yeah, maybe that would be good for me, maybe that would be fun. Uh, you feel like your Christianity is kind of holding you back. Uh, tonight I want us to pull these issues apart a little bit. Uh, we're continuing our series as a Bible overview, working from the very start of the Bible to the end of the Bible uh, in six weeks. What we're going to do tonight is we're actually going to focus in mostly on the book of Exodus. And we're going to see that big sweep of the book of Exodus, where it starts, where it finishes, how the law fits in the middle of it. Uh, and what we'll see, hopefully, is the way that living God's way actually is freeing. Uh, there's three big movements in the book of Exodus. Uh, God frees his people from slavery he gives them this law which forms them as a people and then they are led out to worship and serve him. Uh, that's, the big, that's the big story arc of the book of Exodus. It kind of goes from slavery to service of God. Uh, as we do that, as we look at this book, as we pull it apart together, uh, what we'll see is that human freedom is actually a little bit more complex than maybe we first think. Uh, it's not as simple as just removing all the restrictions and doing whatever we want. Uh, what we'll see is that there is actually true freedom. Where true freedom is found is when we actually align ourselves with the purposes for which we were created. Uh, what we see is that God's rules, his laws, they're actually good barriers for us. Uh, they help us align ourselves with the reasons, with the purposes for which he created us, for which he made us. Uh, and like Terence said earlier, uh, it actually depends, the rules, if they're good rules, it depends on who it is that actually makes them. Uh, if our creator makes us rules, 
then maybe they're actually good for us. Uh, last week, uh, where we got up to in our Bible overview, was we got up to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, what we saw there was that after mankind had broken all the rules in Genesis 1 to 11, uh, the world ended up as a terrible place. Uh, we call Genesis 1 to 11 uh, the sorry story of mankind. Sin and rebellion had led to the world being ruined. Now what we saw as we got to Genesis chapter 12 was that God didn't just stamp them out, he didn't just wipe them out, but in his goodness and in his mercy, God decided that he would step into the world. Uh, he would actually make a change for the better. He said, I'm going to fix this sad story, I'm going to make it better. I'm going to make it all better. He did that by talking to one guy called Abram. Uh, He came to Abram and he made three incredible promises to him. Uh, Can anyone remember those promises to Abram? Bit of bit of thinking. What were the three promises? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Going to have a huge family. Lots of offspring. Anyone else? Through his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Yep. It's going to get abundant blessing. So family, blessings, one in the middle, land. It's going to get land, this great land of Canaan. Family, land, and blessing. Though Abram uh, was married, uh, his wife was barren. Uh, But God made a promise to him. Uh, God said that you will have more children than the stars are in the sky. You'll have more than the sand on the seashore. Uh, That's a pretty big promise. Uh, Though he had no land, God said, I will give you and your descendants the promised land of Canaan, that good land of flowing milk and honey. But most importantly, God actually promised to bless rather than curse Abram. Uh, God would relate to him through blessing. He would relate to his family through blessing. The relationship that God decided to establish with Abram, you see, uh, is that it will no longer be one like Adam and Eve experienced after the fall. Uh, Their their relationship with God won't be one that's defined by exile and curse, but rather it will be one where God draws near to his people, one where God blesses his people. Uh, That was Genesis 12. Uh, It's actually one of the most pivotal moments in the whole story of the Bible. Uh, So important is it that John Stott, the great English preacher of last century, he wrote this, he said, It may truly be said, without exaggeration, that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the whole of the New Testament are an outworking of these promises of God to Abram. Uh, That's how pivotal pivotal these promises are. Uh, The rest of the Bible is actually seeing how these three promises of land, family and blessing are worked out. Uh, What ultimately happens in the Bible Uh, as you read it, is that these promises become partially fulfilled with the people of Israel, with the nation of Israel. So from Genesis 12 uh, through to Exodus chapter 18, uh, we see that the people promise starts to be fulfilled. Uh, This is one that we'll be focusing in on tonight. Uh, We read the stories of Abraham, how he he has a son Isaac. Uh, Isaac has a son called Jacob. Uh, Jacob has 12 sons. Does anyone know Jacob's 12 sons? Anyone out there? Someone probably does. I'm not going to get you to say that. 
Jacob has 12 sons, and those 12 sons actually become the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, from Abraham comes this nation of Israel. And as the years pass, as we get to the end of the book of Genesis, as we get to the start of the book of Exodus, these people have grown. The people promise has come to be fulfilled. So when you get to Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, you actually read this. It says, The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. Uh, They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. By the start of the book of Exodus, the people promise has started to come true. Uh, The problem is, though, that although the numbers of people have grown, although they're on that way for that people promise being fulfilled, the situation that the people of Israel find themselves in is not good. Uh, We got a hint of it in Exodus chapter 6 in our Bible reading earlier. Uh, But at the start of the book of Exodus, what we see is this nation of Israel, they're not experiencing blessing. They're actually in slavery to Pharaoh, to the Egyptian Pharaoh. They're being oppressed by him. Uh, He's making them work day and night as slaves. Uh, In Exodus 1 verse 13, Uh, we read that the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. He made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Uh, God's people, you see, they've grown in numbers, but their experience of life is not good. They're in slavery. They're still under the curse. They're being oppressed What they need is to be freed, isn't it? They need to be freed from this slavery. And that's what the first 18 chapters of the book of Exodus are all about. Uh, They're about how God acts to free his people, to give them freedom. Uh, In chapter 2, verse uh, verse 23 to 25, uh, we read that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They were weighed down by it. They cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant, his promises that he made to Abram with Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and was concerned for them. God hears their cry, you see. He hears the cry of his people. He looks down and he sees them in slavery. And he does something. He decides that he will free them. God is going to act to free his people, to bring freedom to them. He's going to rescue them from this slavery. Uh, The way he goes about doing that, uh, if you know the book of Exodus, uh, he actually appears to a guy called Moses. In chapter 3, verse 14, uh, he says to Moses, he says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and and I want you to tell, tell him to let my people go. If you've seen the movie The Prince of Egypt... Uh, You'd know the song that goes along with that. I'm not going to sing it. Let my people go. Moses, but Moses, after seeing God, after hearing his voice in the burning bush, Moses isn't so sure about all of this. Uh, In the narrative there, uh, Moses asks God a question. He says, God, who are you? What is your name? I don't think that, he says, I don't think the people of Israel will believe me. Tell me, who are you? And God says, he 
He says, this is my name. He says, I am who I am. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. Uh, it's the word that we translate as Yahweh or Jehovah. Uh, it's a bit of a strange way for God to reveal himself. He says, I am who I am, I will be who I will be. That's his name. But what God is saying is that, he's saying this to Moses, he's saying, you want to know who I am? You want to know what I'm like? Well, then watch me. Watch what I'll be like. Watch what I do. Uh, and then you'll get to know me. Watch what I do in the future with these people of Israel. And then you'll know what kind of God I am. The Bible, you see, as it reveals God's story of salvation, it does something at the same time. It actually reveals God's character to us. As we see God's acts, what he does, it actually reveals his being to us, who he is. Uh, sometimes we read the Bible, and I think we, we ask the, the question too early about what does this mean for me? Uh, you ever do that when you read the Bible? You, you just kind of read and you go, well, what, what do I have to do? What does this mean for me? But I think a better question sometimes to ask is, well, what does this text actually tell me about God? What does it tell me about what he's like, about who he is? That's a very good question to ask. Because what we see, what we see as we look at these early chapters in Exodus, is that our God is a God who commits himself to free his people from slavery. That's what our God is like. He's a God who's determined to give us freedom from slavery. Moses goes to Pharaoh. Moses says, let my people go. And Pharaoh replies by saying, who is Yahweh? Who is this God that I should obey him? But all of a sudden, Pharaoh soon finds out, doesn't he? God sends the ten plagues against Egypt. They demonstrate Yahweh's power. They show us who he is. He's the one in control of all things. Each time Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites go. Over and over in his stubbornness, he doesn't let God's people go. He doesn't free them. He keeps them enslaved. But then the tenth and final plague that breaks his resistance. On one dreadful night, God passes through the land in judgment and every Egyptian firstborn son is killed. The Israelites, the Israelite sons, they deserve that as well. They're all sinners. Uh, but God graciously provided a way of escape for them. Uh, God said uh, that if each family, if you kill a lamb and if you sprinkle the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, then I will pass over that, that household. I won't judge that household. I will pass over from it. Uh, it's here in Exodus chapter 12. Moses tells them, he says, the Lord will pass through to strike down the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel, that's the doorpost, and on, and on your doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you down. In this night where God frees his people, this leads to them coming out, being released from slavery. What we see uh, is something very important about how God acts, about how God frees us. Uh, God saves, you see, God frees us 
by substitution. Uh, God's people, they deserve to die as well because of their sin, because of their rejection of God. But another, the lamb, actually dies instead. The lamb dies as a substitute. Uh, This moment in Israel's history, it actually points forward to us today. Uh, It points forward to the greater deliverance of slavery that Jesus has achieved for us. Just as the Passover lamb died for the sin of others, so Jesus died as our substitute. He died to free us from our slavery. He died to give us freedom, not from slavery to Pharaoh, but from our slavery to sin. That's a long introduction just to get to the point that we are in this story with the Egyptians. Uh, We are actually enslaved to sin. You might not actually think that, uh, that you're enslaved to sin. You might not think anyone's enslaving you. Uh, you might actually think that doing whatever you want, whenever you want, uh, is the way to be free. Well, let me ask you the question, are you really free? I mean, in your doing whatever you want, whenever you want, aren't you just actually serving some other master? Uh, Mike Cleveland, uh, in, his, in his book on pornography, it's called The Way of Purity, uh, he writes how, how the sin of pornography actually enslaves us. Uh, he writes this, he says, Pornography, in its essential allurement, promises to quench our thirst. It promises satisfaction. And honestly, it does satisfy. <coughs> but only for a short time. Pretty soon we discover that we are thirsty again and as the years go by, we find that we are really never genuinely satisfied. That is because sin never purely satisfies, it depletes us. It does not fulfil us. Mike goes on and he says, I can recall going from softcore pornography magazines to X-rated videos to cybersex with video cams. I thought if I could just see that perfect picture or have the perfect experience that my life would be full and satisfied. This is the nature of sin. It takes us further and further, and though it promises to satisfy, it never does satisfy eternally. This is why we keep coming back to it over and over again. What Mike says so honestly about pornography is true of all sin, isn't it? Sin enslaves us because we get addicted to it. Uh, at the start, we might think we're being free. Uh, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to look at porn. I'm going to tell this lie. I'm going to spend all this money on myself. I'm going to tear that person down with my words so I feel better about myself. That will give me some sense of satisfaction. What we need to realise is that in whatever sin it is, whatever thing we're doing, the reason we choose it is because we're trying to seek some sense of satisfaction some sense of fulfilment apart from finding it in God. And when we do, like Mike says, it does satisfy, but only for a short time. Uh, Pretty soon we discover that we are thirsty again. So we go back to that sin and we get addicted to that sin. You know how addiction works? I don't know if you've ever looked into the way addiction works, it works like this. Uh, Often there's some kind of disappointment, some kind of distress 
in our lives. Uh, we're having a bad day. We've failed a test. Something's happened. And as a result, we choose to deal with that distress with some agent. Uh, it might be sex, it might be pornography, it might be drugs, it might be going out and drinking, it might be gossiping about people, it might be shopping and spending all this money on ourselves. Whatever it is, whatever the agent is, the reason we choose it is because it promises us some form of satisfaction. Uh, whether it's a sense of being loved or worshipped, whether it's that sense of being in control, a sense of being above other people or a sense of escape from just the drudgery of life. Whatever it is, when we do it, when we take that agent as a way of dealing with life, this trap for addiction is set. Uh, the trap is set because three things actually start to happen when we choose that sin. Uh, the first one is that we actually start to tolerate the sin. Uh, there's a tolerance effect, you see, when we choose sin. What satisfied you the first time, uh, it won't give you the same experience the second time. Uh, it's not as exhilarating. So you find you need to up the levels. Uh, what brought you joy yesterday won't bring you the same amount of joy today and tomorrow. Because our emotions, you see, they start shriveling, they start numbing. Uh, there's a tolerance effect. Secondly, we start to deny the sin. Uh, in our craving for this sense of satisfaction, we, we start to rationalise it and justify our sin. Start to think of it not as sin as such. Oh, it's okay to slander that person. I needed to get that off my chest. Oh, it's okay to buy all this stuff on myself. I've had a really rough week. Uh, it's fine to, make, uh, to not make any effort with that person. They probably wouldn't want to talk to me anyway. We start to, to become selective in our reasoning. We start to justify not loving people well. Uh, we start to lose our ability to think clearly and objectively about the sin in our life. We start to deny it. But thirdly, and I think this is the big one, is that we actually begin to, st- to feel defeated. As we kind of fall into that spiral of choosing the sin over and over again, uh, it destroys our willpower to keep fighting. Uh, you feel like you can't escape that sin, so you just kind of give in to it. Uh, when you feel that you're in a spiral, you feel like you're stuck in it, uh, that's, that's enslavement, isn't it? When you have to keep going back to that sin, that's what it means to be enslaved by sin. That's how sin works. We fall for the lie that some form of disobedience to God, some form of snatching after satisfaction, will really satisfy us. But that very act that seemingly promises freedom, well, it ends up being the very thing that takes our freedom from us. Uh, We thought we were free, but we end up just serving a master that never satisfies us. Jonathan Edwards, uh, the American preacher, he says this, he says, Sin turns the heart into a consuming fire. Just as there has never been a fire that said, Enough fuel, I'm fine now. So there has never been a sinful heart that said, I've had enough success, I've had enough love, I've had enough approval, I've had enough comfort. No, the more fuel you put in the fire, the hotter it burns. And the hotter it burns, the more fuel it needs. 
This is what happens when we fall into sin. Uh, it enslaves us. You want to know what it is that might be enslaving you, what it is that you're falling for? Well, ask yourself this question. Next time you're grumpy, next time you're irritable, next time you fail an exam and you're just having a bad day, ask yourself this question, what is it right now in that moment that if only I had it, then I would be happy? If only I had it, then I would be satisfied. Whatever is your if only, that's become your slave master, hasn't it? The things we crave, they become our slave masters because in our hearts, those things burn with this idea, if only. Everything would be fine if only I had that. And it creates a suction in our life. The more you throw in, the more it wants, the more we have to give. So if we're going to defeat this slavery to sin, uh, if we're going to deal with this enslavement, it's not actually enough, is it, uh, for us to just tell ourselves to stop sinning. Uh, That just doesn't work, does it? Just to say, stop sinning, to kind of try harder and harder to beat it. It doesn't seem to work, I know, in my life. Uh, the real reason that we're having this problem, I think, with falling into sin, with becoming enslaved by it, uh, is because our if only isn't God. Uh, we're not finding our satisfaction in him. Uh, he's not the object of our worship. He's not the one that's actually fueling those desires of our heart. Uh, he's not the one that actually fueling our longings for love and security and worth. The secret to being freed from enslaving patterns, you see, is actually to find God as our master. It's actually the answer is actually worship. Uh, it's to it's to worship Him, to find our satisfaction in Him above all else. We need worship. Uh, we need great worship. We need to get a sense of God's greatness and be moved by it, moved by who God is, moved by what He's done for us. And this needs to be happening all the time. And this is actually the big picture of the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus you see God frees his people and then he takes them out of the land of slavery and he leads them to worship. That's where it ends up. By by chapter 40 we're left with Israel gathered around God worshipping him in his place. That's where we end up. The last 15 chapters of Exodus are all about the tabernacle are the place where God comes to dwell with his people so they can worship him, so he can be number one in their life, so they can serve him, so they can actually be enslaved to him because he is a good master. See, no one is actually really free. We all serve something. Uh, We all worship something. And we become enslaved to that something. The question is, are you worshipping a good master? Are you enslaved to someone who will actually free you? Or are you enslaved to something that will just ruin your life? But before we get there, before we get to worship, uh, there's two things that actually happen in the story of the Exodus. Uh, Two things that actually happen for Israel and for us. 
Uh, they need to happen before we can get to worship. Uh, number one, our enemies need to be defeated. Uh, number two, we need to be reformed by God's word so that we know how to live as God's people, so we know how to worship him properly. So what we see immediately as the people after the Passover incident is that God frees his people, God frees the Israelites, and he saves them completely from their enemies. In Exodus chapter 14, as the people are leaving Egypt, we see that Pharaoh actually has some second thoughts. Pharaoh says, they're actually good slaves. They were building us some good buildings. We're going to go and get them back. So Pharaoh sends out his army to pursue the Israelites. And soon they catch up. And the situation, it looks pretty dire. Uh, It looks impossible. They're faced with the Red Sea in front of them. Uh, They're about to admit defeat. But then God does something. God acts. God parts the sea. He does the impossible. And they walk through safely on dry ground. Uh, The enemies try to follow, but God drowns them. He destroys them. He washes them away. Uh, There is no doubt who this God is. This God, Yahweh, is a God who saves his people by freeing them and by completely destroying the enemies. It actually points us forward to the salvation that Jesus achieves for us, doesn't it? Uh, We who are enslaved to sin, to our enemies of Satan, sin and death, Jesus defeated them on the cross. He defeated them to set us free from their power. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15, we read those wonderful words that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities. He's overthrown the evil spiritual forces. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. This is the good news, you see. Uh, We're not to be defeated by sin because Jesus has defeated it. He's overthrown it. All our guilt, all our shame has been nailed on that cross so we no longer have to bear it. Satan has no power over us. Jesus has triumphed. What we need to do as God's people is to not go back to that old master. We need to start serving our new master. Uh, Our master who has freed us, our master who gives us his life so that we will live for him. And that's what we see in the next thing in the book of Exodus. In chapters 19 to 24... God actually gives his law. He lays down his commandments. And he does that in order to show the people how they're supposed to live as his freed people. Uh, He gives us his law to show us how we're supposed to live as we were always created to be. Uh, Particularly in chapter 20, we hear the famous Ten Commandments. So often we tend to look at the Ten Commandments and we see them as this list of rules and we think, man, they're pretty oppressive, all those things we're not allowed to do. But can you see that in their context, these rules aren't restrictive? These aren't just kind of imposed on people from outside of any relationship? No, these are actually the parameters that God gives his people so they can live truly and freely in his world. They're the boundary markers on how we don't fall back into enslavement to sin. 
Uh, and what you see is that they actually start with worship. Uh, God must be number one. You shall have no other gods but me, he says. These Ten Commandments actually reveal for us how life is meant to be lived. They reveal the life where people know God properly, where people relate to God intimately, and then how, they, how we relate to one another, how we love our neighbour best. Just imagine if everyone went around breaking these commandments. If everyone went around stealing and murdering and lying the whole time, the world wouldn't feel free, would it? No, that's why we have locks on our cars. That's why we have gates and doors. Because we're not free. So often in in worse places than ours, people are terrified to leave their homes. But imagine if everyone adhered to the Ten Commandments. If everyone lived within those boundaries, the world would be a wonderful place, wouldn't it? These rules actually they show us how to live well together, how to have harmonious families, how to have a good work-life balance. Uh, they show us how to be content with what we have so we don't go stealing from other people. Good boundaries, you see, they actually enable freedom, they actually enable us to flourish, to live in the kind of environment that we were created to live in. Just take the example of a fish for a moment. Uh, Imagine a fish swimming in a pond. thinks to itself, I want to be free. Uh, This water's kind of constricting me, so I'm going to jump out of this pond and just flutter around there on the grass. What happens to the fish? Is it really free? Because it's no longer got any restrictions? It's not free. Now outside the environment for which it was created, it actually leads to death, doesn't it? Poor little fish. Its life isn't enhanced, but it becomes destroyed. The fish actually dies when it tries to live outside of the boundaries for which it was created. It's the same with us as humans. Our freedom is found when we live within the bounds for which we were created. To love God and to love our neighbours as ourselves. The Ten Commandments, you see, they're not restrictive. They don't cramp our style. They actually reform us. They allow us to flourish as the type of community that God always wanted us to be. True freedom, you see, it's, it's not so much found in the absence of restrictions, but it's finding the ones, the constraints that actually line up with what we were created for. Uh, we are created, you might remember from Genesis 1 to 3, we were created to be God's people, in God's place, to live under God's rule. And the Ten Commandments actually help us do that. They help us have God as number one. They help us relate to each other properly. But finally and thirdly, in chapters 25 to 40, uh, what we see is that the Israelites they haven't been rescued just to hear God's law, just to be reformed as a people, but they're actually rescued to be in right relationship with God. Uh, they are set free from slavery in Egypt in order to serve and worship Yahweh, who will satisfy them. He will satisfy their every longing. Uh, in these chapters of Exodus, God instructs Moses how to build this tabernacle, this place where God himself will dwell. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. 
Uh, there's lots of details about how to build the tabernacle. Here's a little picture of it. And a few things kind of stand out in the tabernacle. There's two places in particular, the holy place and the most holy place. The holy place is a place uh, you get to as you draw near to God's presence. Um, it's kind of this one. And then the most holy place is the top one. That's where God actually dwells. And in that holy place, there's three different things that kind of stand out there, three things that are placed in that area. Uh, the first one is that there is a table with 12 loaves of bread on it. I know you might think, well, that's what's, what's that got to do with anything? But what we see is that these three things actually symbolise the way God relates to us, the way God looks after us. The, the loaves, the 12 loaves of bread, the, the table of the bread... It actually symbolises that God will supply all our needs. He will satisfy us. Remember when Jesus turns up and he feeds all those people and they have 12 baskets of bread left over? The people were satisfied. The bread here represents that God can satisfy us. He can give us what we need. Secondly, next to it, there's a golden lampstand. The lampstand symbolises that God constantly sees, he watches over his people that he will keep us from harm. As you get closer to where God dwells, uh, we see that there is an altar of incense. Uh, It represents the way that we can get near to God. In the book of Revelation it speaks of how the prayers of the saints are actually an incense to God. Prayer, you see, it's actually a part, a very vital part of our Christian lives. If you're feeling distant from God, a good question to ask is, how's your prayer life going? Are you drawing near to him in prayer? Oh, you can. He wants you to. It's good for you. He redeems us, you see, for a relationship with him. He draws near to us and he says, draw near to me. Come and talk to me, he says. Ask him to help you with the sin in your lives. What we see with this tabernacle, uh, even more so, is that God dwells with his people. God cares for his people. God wants intimacy with them. But at the same time, there's a barrier. Now, there's a barrier between man and God. You can't see it there, but that little kind of open bit isn't meant to be open. That's where there's a curtain. A curtain stands between the holy place and the most holy place, And it symbolises the fact that sinful man can't be in the presence of God. There is a barrier. Sin actually blocks us from getting to God. And you would know this. The more you sin, the further away from God you feel. Uh, In the old system, to deal with this problem of sin, sheep and goats were sacrificed to atone for the sin. But this side of Jesus, this side of the cross... Uh, we know that Jesus is the sacrifice. His death on the cross is the way that we can go back to God, the way that we can enter back into his presence. And what that means is that because he is the sacrifice, he is the one that when he died, that temple curtain tore in two, symbolising that we can go back into God. What that means is that he is the one who truly deserves our worship. Uh, he is to become the if only 
in our lives. If only I had Jesus, then I would be okay. When you, and, and you know, when you do have him, when you do have Jesus, you actually see that he is the bread who satisfies. Uh, he is the Lord that watches over us and cares for us. Uh, he is the one who draws near to us to give us life. Uh, he gives us life by himself being that pleasing sacrifice. And it's this sacrifice, isn't it? It's Jesus' death on the cross for us that actually moves us to worship. Uh, to know that he died for you, it gives you that sense of love that you've been longing for, doesn't it? That sense of love that you've been trying to find and fill in those kind of falling for sin, falling for the devil's tricks. Uh, to know that he chose you. It gives you that sense of value that you've been craving for, doesn't it? To know that he forgives you, it takes away your bitterness. To know that he died for you, it gives you that sense of worth that you're looking for in all those other ways. The challenge for us, I think, is that we need to let his love for us, his love shown for us at the cross, we actually need to let that win our worship. We need to let his death satisfy the fires in our heart. And when you do that, when he becomes your if only, you actually start to feel incredibly secure. You start to feel incredibly loved. You start to respond to him by living for him. You choose to. Not because you have to. It doesn't feel restrictive. Because it's a relationship of love. You respond to him. You actually feel free to live for him. To live and love like you were created to. Jesus says in John 8, he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. When you know the truth of his love for you, you worship him. And there you'll find your freedom. Uh, So abide in him. Live in his word. In those moments of temptation, remind yourself that his word that tells you that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he can satisfy your every longing. Let his love win your love. And there you would find true freedom. We pray for us. Now, Heavenly Father, we are sorry that so often we fall back into sinful habits. Father, so often we try to find our sense of love, being loved, that satisfaction that we long for, that sense of worth in all these other areas of life when what we really need is to go to you. Father, we thank you that on the cross we see that you truly love us that there is where we see how valued we truly are. So, Father, please help us to let your love win our love so that we worship and live for you. Amen.